Before we get started, I'd just like to say that this podcast does come with a language warning. It does contain strong language. If I felt the need to cry, I was going to cry. There was no longer the need to keep up pretenses or keep my pride or look more manly than the person who would let tears flow down his face. Mm. So in a way, it gave a bit of permission. And I always say it's permission that nobody should need. We should already have that permission. That's Daniel. And that's this week's dad. Hi, I'm Josh. This is my song. Stay tuned. This is Life with Jimmy and More, the podcast. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in today. Every two weeks, I talk to dads with children who need a little bit more help, whether it be special needs, disabilities, rare disease, or extra needs. Some dads can feel very alone in this journey, like I did for 11 years. Putting this podcast together and getting it out there to those I hope who need it has only been possible with the support of Junko, my amazing and supportive rock star wife, Joshua, who made the beautiful music for the show on his iPad. And of course, Jamie. If it wasn't for Jamie, this would not even be here. And you would probably be probably listening to something else, another podcast. So thank you, Jamie, for doing this. And thank you for allowing me to help myself, which allows me to help others. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. There's, I'm sure it's the reason you do it, but there's just not enough stuff out there for dads like us. So I'm glad to have you doing this. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I'm really glad you said that because that is exactly why I do this. Um, to get into the ears of dads. And um, that's the main thing, of course, but also um, to allow dads to share their journey their unique journey um because it is a unique journey as a dad right it's not it's not a mum journey it's a dad journey and that i think is um really important and ironically we're having this that discussion this is mother's day now this is mother's day so um to all the mums out there who listen and i know that there are a lot of mums who listen to this um, it's about over 65% of my listenership is woman. Because um, they want to know what the dads in their lives are thinking and they don't know it directly from the dads. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. That's what I keep. It's, it's obviously, well, we, I guess that's why they're listening because they want to get a bit of an insight as to how us, how we operate because we are weird. I do think that we are weird people. Men, we are very odd um, not all of us, not all of us, I'm going to make that clear, not all of us, but we tend to not, well, I tended to not be in touch with my emotional side. Um, I thought I was, but I wasn't. So, 
Well, I um, think so many of us culturally, and it's it's going to be interesting for me to hear it from your perspective, not being in America, but mm. uh, we, I don't know about all men, all dads, but we probably have all those feelings, but we just have been indoctrinated or enculturated to not share them, to mm. keep them to ourselves. You know? Yeah. I, I think it's so true. And I think I, I kind of talking about that, I think is actually really interesting. And, and I, I feel when I watch, I was watching a, um, a TV series the other day and I, found myself again having that feeling of kind of well like emotion right eyes getting kind of watery and I used to without really knowing it and doing it automatically I'd try and shut it down for so many years I, I can't think for how many years easily 40 odd years is that I shut it down. I kind of inside I had that kind of um, ability to just ignore it and not allow it to come out. I don't know what it's like for you. It's interesting you bring up that example because it may have been true prior to my experience as a dad with Lucas and Lucas had a diagnosis of Menke's syndrome and that sort of changed everything. And mm. it, um, I've described it sometimes as a feeling of game over and not like we've lost the game, but the time for playing games is over. And ever since then, if I felt the need to cry, I was going to cry. There was no longer the need to keep up pretenses or keep my pride or look more manly than the person who would let tears flow down his mm -hmm. face. So in a way it gave a bit of permission and i always say it's permission that nobody should need we should already have that permission mm -hmm. just by nature of being human but special circumstances sometimes unlock um the things we need mm -hmm. yeah it's that it, it's, you said permission kind of permission to kind of to show it I don't know for me if it was the if I felt like I was was that I feel I I think it was so programmed in me to not cry. I feel like that was so programmed in me, um, and to not show it. Um, actually, it's really we're starting this this, this chat like in such a bizarre way. And I, and I think that it's great because this is what I love about these chats is that it can just go, can go in each direct, any odd direction. I want to share actually something with you because we're talking about kind of emotion and crying and, and I, I'm going to share something. Um, we had a, uh, the other week, uh, we were coming back from, a uh, like it was a Japanese holiday. And it was only just three, three, I went, went away for like three days, four days. Anyway, um, it's, it was a bit of a, like, it'd been a bit of a rough ride. We had, we had some fun, but, um, hitting, driving three hours into Nagano, four, four hours into Nagano, even more than actually, I think it was five, because we had traffic jams. Five, five hours to Nagano. And along that way is that I, 
my youngest was blowing his nose um, because he had he had had peanut he, he he's got a peanut allergy and he had pot noodles that had peanuts in it. We didn't know, didn't even think about even bloody checking this stuff, right? Um, anyway, so he, thank God, thank fucking God, it was, it didn't restrict any of, of his breathing. It just meant that he felt like shit and his stomach was funky. Anyway, I'm going to move forward on that. So he was basically, he um, he threw up in the car which was great because then he felt better. But then he was blowing his nose for the next four hours, okay? Every five minutes. I'm not going to joke on this. Every five minutes he blew his nose. In the back of the car is Jamie, who hates it when he blows his nose. Mm. Um, and I'm driving the van. My wife's in the back. And so basically I was just like, I was just literally for about three hours I was – Focusing on to driving, of course, but also breathing in through my nose and out through my mouth, literally for three hours, four hours. We got to Nagano, had a good time, come back from Nagano, right? And we, uh, the nose thing's sorted itself out, but Jamie is a little bit antsy. And I was, there was a lot of noise in the car, couldn't, there was, People couldn't decide on music. I was doing my breathing exercises. And I got to a point where I was like, fuck, I need to pull off. Because if I don't pull off the highway, I'm going to goddamn have an accident. I'm going to lose my shit. I'm going to pull off. So I, 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 said, to, I said to John, I said, I'm, I'm pulling off. We're going to just you know, pull over. So we pulled into the disabled bay. And I think I, I don't know if I turned the car off or left it on anyway. And I just put my head onto the, onto the, the wheel. And... Jamie kind of, it was quietish in the back. And then I heard my wife say, he, she's, my wife's like, no, don't do that. And then, and then I hear this kind of, and then I hear this boom. And then, and he's kicked the window out of the car. He's kicked the, this window, which is probably about a meter by half a meter, just straight out of the van. And I'm just like, I, I'm exhausted from the mental fatigue of driving with all the noise. And I just get out the car, I walk around, and I, I have no energy for, to be angry. That, that is gone. My tank is empty on that. But I'm just, I walk around and I just open the door, because I can see right in the van now, of course, but I just open the door anyway, because that's clearly what I thought needed to be done. And I, and I, and I just put my hands on the top of the, the rail, kind of leaning into the van. And I'm just like, I'm looking at my wife. She's there. And we're just looking at each other. And we're just like, what the fuck? And, and then from that moment onwards, I just, I just felt like the emotion and the, the, just the stress of what had happened and the, and the shock of what had gone on just came over me and I, and I just started to kind of cry right there. And I, and a guy, a guy, someone, there were a group of people standing to the left-hand side who didn't even do anything, didn't even come over. They just stood there looking. They saw the window come out. They did fucking nothing, right? A guy came along 
And he walked around and he was like, in Japanese, he says like, you know, are you okay? I'm just like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm just in that position. But I, that was a moment where like, again, I just, I just let it go. But I don't think I would have let it go. I wouldn't have been able to feel I could let it go if that had happened um, an emotional, stressful situation. I don't think I could have let it go. That's the point I'm getting at. I know it's a yeah. bit of a long, drawn-out story there. Well, I think I've had somewhat similar experiences, and I think what it shows is how families like ours, the parents are at capacity. Our, what we take on on a, our routine, our daily, our normal, is our maximum. We're, we're right up against the most we can do even when things are going smoothly and then something extra comes along. Like one time for me, it was a flat tire. Mm. Um, and that is the straw that breaks the camel's back. And you don't know necessarily, cause we sort of get good at what our new normal is, right? We, we <laughs> manage these difficult things so often mm. that um, we forget that they're a bit heavy and both emotionally and stressfully and, um, and then this other thing comes along, like the broken window or the flat tire, and you say, you, whether you say it or not, in your head is, this is one thing too many. I can't, I it's can't just, do it this. It takes you too. over that line. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like the. It must. It, it's. It must happen to. So many. Parents, dads, mums, right? That's got to be it. We we. And it's, I think, talking about it and saying, okay, it's not pretty. It is not pretty. But I think the key is that when that happens is that we have to, we have to be able to pull ourselves back. How did you pull yourself back from that moment, the flat tire? How did, how did you do it? I, I don't know that I really did. I, th I think it just takes a while to calm down and move on and and get out of the the justified anger mode and into back into sort of the practical like okay what are the steps to fix this you know who do you have to call for the flat tire or for the broken window or mm -hmm. and then you get back into the practical and it it if you're lucky it just you once the emotion of it fades it's just one more set of tasks on your very long to-do list but i i did getting aware of it, knowing that I was almost always at my maximum, even if I wasn't feeling that mm -hmm. and knowing that I, that gave me sort of a hair trigger for righteous indignation and anger and all those things. I, I, I don't know that I successfully managed it too much better, but at least I could be aware that it was likely to happen and maybe try to take a step back and take a breath and, and realize, yeah, this is a lot, but I've gotten through a lot before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a t that's an interesting one. So we're kind of operating at that fight and flight kind of, as they say, point. Yeah. Um, and kind of getting ourselves, trying to bring ourselves kind of down from that, which is really difficult with, um. You know, trying to kind of make that happen in our day and our time and 
fill the cup and all that kind of stuff. And we'll, maybe we'll come back to that. I'm pretty sure we're going to revisit that. But Daniel, let's hear, I've kind of hogged in here things, but can you tell us about um, how you're, you're sitting here talking to me? Uh, because your story is about Lucas, and I think we need to hear this. So can you yeah. can you fill it, fill this um, in? Sure, Lucas was my first child, and so uh, there was all the new parent, you know, what you don't know about parenting, mixed in with what we'd find out later were very special circumstances because uh, it wasn't until age one that he was diagnosed with Menke's syndrome, but at birth he had a skull fracture, so we spent ten days in the NICU with wow. him and people looking at um, what might be happening, including neurology and all different specialists um, trying to figure out, you know, is is this just a broken bone at the occipital base of the skull or is, is there maybe more to this, right? And the cruel irony in hindsight is um, there was more to be found and nobody found it at the time. And unlike a lot of rare diseases, Menke's disease actually has a treatment available if given in the first 10 days of life. It can be restorative and, and the boy, it's almost always boys, mm -hmm, okay. uh, can can proceed to what we think of as a more typical life, a more normal set of uh, health symptoms. Um, well, sorry, what, Daniel, what, what is the percentage roughly between boys and girls that have it? Oh, it's probably 90% boys oh, because right. it's, okay. it's, so it's, it's an X-linked yeah. uh, disorder. So you really have to have that lightning strike twice for a girl. Mm. They can be carriers. The moms usually are uh, – women can be carriers. But it's much less likely to have a symptomatic female. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so we were in exactly the right place, seeing the right people for those 10 days. For the first 10 days, he was in a NICU seeing all these specialists and I don't with, with a lot of years of hindsight, I don't fault mm -hmm. any of the medical professionals for not knowing to look for Menke's syndrome, but I've learned since that Menke's syndrome has a related disorder called occipital horn syndrome. Mm -hmm. And the fact that my son had an occipital fracture and nobody, I mean, if you just think of it, if they had Googled occipital, maybe it would have come up, you know, it's mm. the, and I've also, I've told the same story to medical professionals and some have said, oh, that's, that's not related. It sounds related, but it's not related to Menke's disease. The, the fact that your son had a skull fracture and I'm not an expert, but I just feel like that's way too much of a coincidence that had to, had to be related. Mm. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's the way of saying that, um, uh, things could have gone very differently for us, you know. It, yeah, I, I actually I, I watched a video um, before we spoke, and um, the hair is a very early telltale telltale sign of this. Um, can you tell us about that? Yeah, sort of a nickname for Menke's syndrome is kinky hair syndrome because the the hairs are actually so brittle and sort of twisted they spiral a little bit i think it's called pili torti in medical latin speak right. um so they will break off you know wherever your head comes into contact with a surface so the oh, back of my son's head would basically be bald right. um and in fact when it was time 
eventually to see a geneticist, uh, he knew right away. He We were fortunate in the sense that he had seen other kids with Menke syndrome, and he really just needed a few minutes with my son, looked at his hair and said, we're going to test for copper because Menke's is a copper transport disorder. Right, okay. And uh, so... I've since gotten to know so many people in the rare disease space and you know, the diagnostic odyssey is a painful thing and it can last seven years for people or more to find out what their diagnosis is. And we didn't see a geneticist till Lucas was nine months old and um, by one year old. So within three months, we had the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's never good news to get one of these diagnoses, but if you're going to get it, you'd rather get it quickly, I think. So, yeah. Yeah. How did that, how did you feel when you got that? It was, uh, without exaggeration, the worst day of my life. Um, Even though uh, I had somewhat prepared myself in those three months, he said, we're going to look into copper. So I did Dr. Google searching and what are copper disorders? And there's really only three. There's Wilson's disease when you have too much copper, Menke's disease when you have not enough, and occipital horn, which is sort of a variant of Menke's. So um, I knew it would be one of those things. Mm. And Wilson would have been far preferable. They have, I think, three drugs on the market to and people go on to adulthood and perfectly functional lives and they just sort of manage their care and their symptoms. Mm-hmm. So obviously I was hoping that it would be Wilson. Yeah. And then the news came that it was Minkies and it was the, it was the shock and the lowest of my life. And, and I mentioned that feeling of game over, it really did feel like uh, everything you expected for your life, everything you previously thought mattered doesn't and it the diagnosis is like a death sentence you know it's um you're told boys with monkeys are going to live three to ten years and here i am did did, when they delivered the the diagnosis to you they they kind of said all this information to you or they just said this is what it is and that's basically all because I, I, yeah, do you see what I'm saying? Like, did did you, you had obviously done a bit of research on this? Um, but how did they? Yeah, they delivered it to you. Was it was it done in the right way? Was it done in a? I I would say, not exactly. I want to be charitable that everybody involved was probably doing the best job they can do. Um, but you know, for example, the geneticist um, was proud of his good quick work right <laughs> yeah. from his from his point of view he was a success he it got a to a, a rare diagnosis mm. very quickly and that was good work by him mm. but in telling it to us there wasn't dropping maybe, the bombshell yeah there wasn't maybe enough bedside manner of i don't know how you ease someone into this news or how you prepare them for this news but then he had a genetic counselor too and she was better at the emotional needs and the context and stuff but at that point i think you're in a bit of like the fog of war it's like the fog of diagnosis you, mm. you your brain can only process so much and i don't know if 
that genetic counselor said to us, you can follow up with me or you should follow up with me or we have more available to you when you're ready or any of those things. She may have said those things, which is what we probably needed to hear, but it didn't register with us. So we didn't do any other contact with the genetic counselor. And now, because of I've spent so much time in this space with other families, I know how valuable that could have been and mm. helpful it could have been. Wow. I suppose it, 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 it has to be a tricky job, though, isn't it? For these, because you're delivering, well, you know, they know that they would be delivering earth-shattering news, right? They know that they know this. So how do you do that? How do you put that into um, into words? I don't think I don't I don't know I don't know if there's a way of doing this. Yeah, there may be no good because, way, and yeah. and some of the information I needed may have they may have handed me a pamphlet and I wasn't ready for it, and I probably set the pamphlet aside or something. But mm. yeah, it's. Uh, it's tough. It's yeah. It's tough on all sides of the equation, I'm sure. And that's I, I now today I, I admire genetic counselors so much. I think most, almost all of them, are so good at um, being human about the, one of the worst situations you're finding yourselves in. You know? mm. Okay. So. We. I've, as you've probably heard, you, you've listened, um, you mentioned before, you've listened to um, some of the episodes. And I've talked about, I always, I, I talk about kind of acceptance and process of where our kind of, where our lives are when we get these diagnoses or when we don't even get them, but we're in that kind of world of like, what the hell is going on? Like we don't, something, my child is not a normal child. There is something different here um so my dog is snoring because <laughs> if you can hear that or not she's snoring away um um the kind of acceptance and reality of kind of where we are is i i've, I've kind of got, got to a point where i think i feel it's it's very much a journey of understanding kind of I mean you get the you get the first stage of it and then you have to keep reassessing yourself perhaps on even on a daily basis um and you said just there you said that you it was like a the bomb it was really tough when you got that diagnosis it was very tough and I think dad's like out there um who they also get this they also get the diagnosis like the mum does, right? And some dads can take it and be like, Okay, um, this is really horrible, this is just really shit. But I'm gonna try and work with it. Other dads don't. And they the frustration and the anger can overwhelm their lives, their families' lives, and things like that. Um, what did what did it? What was it like for you? Oh, it was. It, it uh, when I said that um, 
it changed the game or it felt like game over it it was devastating but it was also um i mean essentially if you imagine the worst thing that could happen to a parent who has one child and to hear essentially that child is going to be taken away from you you know a few years down the road but yes and so there there's this horrible dread and impending doom and but it's also um the worst thing that could happen is happening and what do you do about that and you 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 either fall into despair and and probably never come out or you you grieve is and and to those are biggest thing for me is to to put that terminology on it to know that mm. what was happening was grief and stages of grief and i now know more precise language for it like anticipatory grief and ambiguous grief and but can we talk about that can we talk yeah, about those please. stages because i think i i don't have that you've probably got more knowledge on this than i have and yeah, i think that, i had mm. I had a little bit of the basic knowledge I think most people know comes from Kubler-Ross and Kessler's work, which is the five stages of grief, right? Let's and go so through them, hey, because I think there's here. Yeah, I, I probably <laughs> won't be able to name all of them. Oh, okay, okay. Head, but there's, <laughs> there's, 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 there's anger, there's denial, yeah. there's bargaining, I think. Um, but it was very important to me to latch on to after Elizabeth Kubler-Ross had died, David Kessler kept the work going and he added a sixth stage, which was purpose or meaning, mm, okay. making meaning. And that was kind of where a lot of my energy went. Um, but each, each stage, and I hate to even use the term stage uh, because it implies that you can go through them. Certainly you don't go through them in order yeah. and you don't go through them once and check them off a list and be done with them. They keep recurring. So I sometimes like to say phases or waves mm. of grief because they keep coming around and you don't know when they're going to hit you again. And just because you feel like, oh, I really dealt with that anger. I'm not angry anymore. Well, next thing you know, the car tire blows and you're angry again. Mm. Um, but um, that last sixth stage of meaning making and purpose building was something I latched onto relatively early. Um, at first, of course, and maybe this is part of bargaining, you look for what research is happening on your rare disease and is it happening on a timeline that can save your child, right? So we heard our one-year-old had three to 10 years uh, that he would live. And we were fortunate. One of the first things people do is they look, is there a clinical trial for this? And there was a clinical trial for Mancus disease, which is very fortunate. And we got into it, which is even more fortunate. So now we're getting the only known treatment that can work, possibly work. But you were supposed to start it in the first 10 days of life, and we're starting it at age one. So it's maybe not going to work. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so the bargaining, I think I went from, what can we do for my child? Can mm. he be saved? Can he be made less ill? Mm. Um, and then I moved a little bit into the purpose and meaning making, which was there's a great injustice here that kids with rare disease aren't getting diagnosed 
early enough. They're not getting research and treatment available to them. The, you know, they're called, they used to be called orphan diseases because pharmaceutical companies found no value in pursuing these treatments. Mm. Luckily, we've improved a bit on that front. But um, so I went into a bit of a mode of what can be done for other kids with Mankey's disease or the next kids to come along after my son can we make things better for them and it seemed not that i could fix this but especially given that early diagnosis could make such a difference that meant to me that awareness and the need for newborn screening could make such a difference and that's part of why i told lucas's story and made a film about lucas and mm. So I know you've talked to other dads about um, do they throw themselves into their work as a way to maybe avoid the harsh reality of their home situation. Mm. I may have done some of that in the advocacy realm where mm. if I couldn't fix Lucas, maybe I could fix the next kids to have Mankey's disease or help. I could be a, a part of the mm. solution. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So it was... <sighs> Um, I've just I've just done I've just done a search here of, of stages of grief. Uh, so st stages, yeah. Um, five what are five stages of grief? Um, uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally acceptance. Um, and within there, there's obviously so much, right? Um, I. You, you said you you kind of perhaps got to that point of acceptance. Um, how long did it? Do you think it? Could, you said a couple of years, was it? You said to get to kind of where you. Like, uh, it, I it, mean, it, maybe. yeah. <laughs> not, the, the, <laughs> none none of none of them none of them have been easy, and none no, of them no. have been complete acceptance. But the first two, at least, were the most devastating, and it wasn't. Mm -hmm. So let's see. Lucas was diagnosed in two, uh, January 2010 and um, no, January 2009, 10. Anyway, um, it was five years later that I was feeling able to share his story publicly. Okay. And, and for me, that was, that was a big step in, if you want to call it healing or mm. moving, moving into a new realm of this. And sure enough, I discovered, I didn't know when I first shared his story, if I was just venting because I needed to get it out and sure there, there is value in that and that helped me, but the sort of unexpected aspect was how people responded to the story and that other people said me too, you know, I, I've mm -hmm. been there or I needed to hear this from someone else or you've, you've put into words what I've been feeling or something. So mm that let me know there was value to sharing his story beyond what it did for me right mm -hmm. and so the first story was a blog post and then that sort of encouraged me to make the film and then the film led to whole, a whole so many other things um it sort of opened doors of who i met right who who was in a similar space and world and experience that I could commiserate with or collaborate with or lean on. And did you, did you have dads in that field? Do you have, did you, was it a lot of moms or what did it look like for you? Yeah. Um, I know this is not a surprise to you at all, but it's, no. it's almost all moms, right? So um, <laughs> because of our, whatever cultural norms or whatever, if yeah. you, 
if you were a two-parent working household and then you get dealt a, a surprise circumstance of a child with additional stressful mental complex care needs, medical complex care needs, um, probably somebody's going to go more full-time stay-at-home parent mode. And often that's the woman, not the man. Mm -hmm. And the, the man remains the... I'll work outside the home and bring in the paycheck and keep the health insurance going. And the mom tends to be the one to be the caregiver, which doesn't have to mean they're the only one who's going to be an advocate, but mm. it, it tends that way. Right. Yeah. So yes, I probably like you found too few dads in this space, but when I did find them, they were, um, all that more valuable. So mm -hmm. uh, one of the places was, uh, I now work at Global Genes, but in 2015, I was just attending the event as, as you know, uh, audience member. And I met Bo Bigelow there and I was so impressed with him. He was brand new to his diagnosis, a few months into his daughter's diagnosis of Howe Fountain Syndrome. And he was, in my opinion, so far, along in his advocacy and so proactive and you could tell he was going to get things done and he happened to be the exception of someone had to keep working and it was his wife and he stopped his career as a lawyer to be the really? full-time parent in the home and uh we forged this great friendship and became business partners and created uh, the disorder channel but before that, the Rare Disease Film Festival. And another dad that we met through that festival in a similar situation, Mike Gralia, also his situation was the exception. Uh, he said his wife would continue to bring in the paychecks and mm -hmm. he would quit his career and stay at home and be the parent. And so they were a, a great value to me. I was not quite in that situation. I continued to work, but um, my wife also continued to work. And that was probably only possible because we had a nurse in the home. Mm -hmm. um, but it was also possible because at the time I was self-employed and I could adjust my schedule where needed. Right. So mm -hmm. not that I was the primary parent or caregiver but i was the flexible one that mm -hmm. you know if if something came up in the middle of the day my schedule could usually accommodate that and i would mm -hmm. run to the doctor or run to the school or whatever it was so in a way i could relate more to those dads that were taking on that role mm -hmm. um but and so there's even fewer of them right as you find yeah, dads, there is there is right, there's even yeah. fewer of them I mean, yeah. that's, it, it's like a needle in a haystack trying to find those guys. Um, yeah. I, why, I don't have the answer to this. And I think it's in a way good to kind of mind map this brainstorm, whatever we want to call it. Why, why you talk about the, in, in a lot of, in typical situations like the, um, the, yes, the wife stays, uh, stays home and the husband keeps working. Which is a, which is a very kind of patriarchal system, right? Um, where husband still goes out, and I think um, one of these things that 
perhaps doesn't happen maybe enough is that uh, maybe it does um i'm not sure but the conversation that goes to go on between the husband and wife about really you know who who should become the caregiver like the primary caregiver and, and the, the person who stays home essentially right if that's the, if that's the case because i think like a lot of a lot what I think is that it's the the dad almost perhaps automatically feels it's going to be him default. He feels that it's got it's got to be on him in a way, um, and and he might not be in a a kind of he might not be in the best kind of position to be to to be that kind of you know that rock in that sense, right? Um. But I think that conversation that happens between parents, I think that's something that probably should happen a bit more. Is But that's a tough conversation to have because, you know, one might go into that with like, okay, well, I do want to do this, but then the other, piece, the, the other might be like, well, I want to do that as well. But that's part of marriage and that's part of, communication i do feel maybe that dad's just there's almost like no dialogue on this it's like i'm just gonna i'm just gonna keep on working what are your thoughts on that yeah i i'm not sure um how much it's it's the cultural expectation or the gender norm roles that we have but um i I imagine part of most couples conversation can boil down to which person is making more money and that's the person mm. who should keep their job. Mm. And that's logical on a financial level and whichever yeah. gender you are, that's, mm. that might be your answer. Um, in our case with my wife and I, she had health benefits and I didn't. So yeah, that, right, was, okay. that was, I mean, it, it may not have even been in our conversation out loud, but mm. it was probably a pretty major deciding factor. Um, mm. but then too, on the emotional differences between men and women, right? Um, you can imagine a lot of women, uh, in their feelings of motherhood and caregiving yeah, well, the... and then facing a choice of, will I not abandon, but step away from my child for eight hours or more every day. Do I want to make that decision? And it, and it probably for most mothers feels so counter to their instinct. Mm. So, and yet we know for, for any family that has two working parents, people routinely make that decision. They say, it's, it's my career. It's important. I'm going to do it. Mm. But in the extraordinary circumstances of there's heightened needs We've already decided somebody needs to be here. Who's the somebody? You could see how emotionally it might um, strike more of the core of mother's instincts than the yeah. dad's instincts, which tend, again, gender stereotypes here, but dads right. tend that's, to, that's they tend to go towards, what can I fix, right? What can I fix? And I probably can't fix the healthcare needs. You know, like there are 
dealing with symptoms, of course, but the underlying, you know, Menke syndrome, I'm not going to fix. I'm not the geneticist that's going to repair that. Um, so fix it mode for dad can lead to, I can go out and get a paycheck. I can go out and bring in healthcare insurance. And that's my thing. That's what I'm yeah. doing. Right. Mm. And so division, if that's your division of labor and if it goes down traditional gender roles, that's how I see that likely unfolding. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that's kind of right. I think um, it's, I can, I can bring in the money. Um, that's what perhaps like society has shown to us through, you know, socialization through so many forms. Right. Um, okay. Let's move forward with your journey here, Daniel, because, um, what, what's, let's go forward a little bit. Um, because one thing you haven't mentioned is that, um, the unfortunate part of it is that Lucas is not with us anymore. Um, can, can you tell us about how that, how, how that played out? Yeah. Um, we lost Lucas June 6th of 2020, which was the height of the American uh, pandemic of COVID. Uh, at that point, we're in upstate New York, a bit north of New York City. And New York City was probably the worst place mm. in America for COVID at the time. Um, so I, I mentioned that not that COVID contributed to Lucas's death, um, but it was the context and the circumstances. And it meant that um, we didn't have a funeral. Um, in his last days, six days in the hospital, only one parent was allowed to visit. And we chose me, or I, I thought I was sort of bravely volunteering that it would be me. I would be exposed to the COVID risks and spare my wife that. In hindsight, I can also see that maybe I deprived her of some of the last days with her child and that maybe it wasn't so generous of me after all. Um, do you feel, do you feel guilty on that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, 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 uh, it sounds terrible to say the great thing, but the, the thing that mitigates that guilt mm. is, is that, um, when we were discharged from those six days, Lucas got one night back at home with us, right. with the family in mm -hmm. our, our normal, you know, which would be to gather in the evening on the couch and all four of us. Um, and we, got, you know, we always, any hospital stay with Lucas, he's nonverbal. So we rely mm -hmm. on his smile. He's a very smiley right. boy, um, laughs a lot. And we, we look for that to know okay, he's, he's doing better. Mm. And we got that that night. And it was his younger brother who always would, you know, crack him up and make him smile. And, and we got that moment together and we just didn't know that it would, it was, you know, I hate to say it was like a happy ending, but mm. it was, a, it was a status for, for what we didn't know would be our last night with him. It was a good one. And the next morning he woke up 
just enough to struggle briefly and fade away. So all of this um, had been on our minds. Of course, since his diagnosis, we, we kind of knew this day would come, but um, more precisely, the previous December, one of his specialists told us because of complications he was having mostly with his kidney and bladder and infections. And we were proud, there were options, surgeries and procedures and things, but none of them were going to buy us much time. And the time we were looking at was months, not years. And how do you, even, how do you do, how, Daniel, how do you deal with that? Because how do yeah, you do that as a dad? I know it, 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 it's again it's it's devastating i'm, I'm, I'm sitting here and yeah. i'm trying to i'm trying to like i hear you say it and i'm and i'm i'm trying to process how the fuck do you even like it, yeah it, let that in and yeah. be like and yeah, I mean, some, and again, it, it, we probably went through all those phases of grief again on this mm. new information, this new timeline. And yet as much as I thought of myself, and I probably was somewhat educated on the particulars of Menke's disease or other, you know, chronic illnesses and these situations, I heard him say months, not years. And I probably went right into bargaining mode or rationalizing or over optimism or something where I, well, how many months are we thinking? And of course they can't tell you, but in my head, it was more like 11 months. Cause you know, it's not 13 or else they would have said years. Right. So I want to go for it in mentally as many mm -hmm. months as, as could be hoped for. Right. And that was December and we lost him in June. And if you think about it, if somebody says months, not years, six is probably a good down the middle guess, but yeah. it still was, it was still, even with this forewarning, it was a surprise. It was a shock. It was things that happened along the way. Um, I don't want to say we were in denial or we rationalized them, but you thought, this isn't the cataclysmic event. This is one of the other chronic events that we're going to manage our way through like we always do. Um, it's very hard with a degenerative condition. I, I learned a great uh, bit of wisdom from one of the dads that's in one of the rare disease films we have on the Disorder Channel that you hear degenerative and you think, um, your, your listeners won't see my hand motion, but you think a ramp that goes straight down starts up high ends up low yeah and that is a path to degeneration but more likely it's a plateau a steep drop a plateau a steep drop and right. okay that can be good and bad you get mm -hmm. to enjoy those plateaus of a little less medical crisis a little less urgency and stress and a little more happiness and joy in your life but then each drop comes as another shock and you don't know how far are we going to drop and are we are we going to get into another plateau that's manageable again or are we into some even worse uh, set of circumstances and harder to manage life you know 
How did you? How did? How did you manage life in those situations where it drops? Because that—that's again, you know, you wouldn't be alone in this, right? This is happens to thousands, millions of people, right? Those drops when you like, it's it's not that kind of gradual decline, like you say, which is interesting because that's what I would would think until you've said that. Is that it's like that kind of it's like stairs, but it's kind of like the boom, you know? Um, how? How do you? How did you pull yourself? Those moments when it really went down. Can you look back and can you be like? Oh yeah, it. I mean, it's awful. Everything requires these huge adjustments. Around that time of uh, the December to June timeframe was. Mm. Um, the introduction of an oxygen tank in the home for us, right. okay. which, you know, each piece of equipment that does something, I mean, you need it. You're, you're grateful for the equipment because without it, you'd be worse off. But each piece of equipment like that, like when my son was age two, he needed to stop taking food by mouth and only take food by G-tube. Mm. Um, but each one of those is its own sort of grief event and shock event yes, and getting, is, yeah. getting used to it, right? Like we were saying goodbye to this expectation. Um, and so I guess other than processing, taking the time to come to grips with things, the biggest thing that got us through anything throughout all of this um, was Lucas himself, Lucas being so cheerful and happy almost all the time. Obviously, if he was in distress, not not then. But, you know, I, I often say, if you or I or anybody you meet on the street, you ask, how often are you happy? I don't know what people would say. Would would they be lucky to be happy 50% of the day? That's a good day, question, actually. Right? That's a really good question. Yeah. But I, I think the number is relatively, if it's 50%, you're probably doing great. You know, yeah. you're happy, you're happy yeah. half the time. Mm -hmm. My son was happy easily 80% of the time. Right. And what a blessing that was for him and for us, because when we were at our lowest worrying about him, we could look to him and see that he wasn't worried about him, mm -hmm. right? He was enjoying his life. He was enjoying us. And so in some ways we let him be our guide and we mm -hmm. let him remind us of what really mattered to him and what really matters full stop, you know, let's enjoy this. Let's, mm. and, and that was something I wanted to uh, get across in the movie I made that yeah. as bad as the diagnosis is, because be prior to my movie, Mankey's disease, finding help and hope, you would go online and you would read dire medical information. And that's all true. I can't contradict that truth, but I can put that truth in context that says, and yet you will enjoy your life with your child for some number of years, might not be very many years, but I wanted to show my family and some other families actually going on with their lives and not just hitting the, the worst news ever and, and despairing and crying. Which is a very real thing, isn't it? Um, yeah. It, it's it's a thank you thank you for sharing that, um, Daniel as well. It's like 
it's always I, I kind of it's difficult, isn't it? Because to share these real things, the real emotions, the real facts, the real the reality um is tough it's tricky and it's like you look i see i i see um on social media I see um you know there's a lot of positive positive social media is full of people smiling and all that kind of stuff um and that's nice but i i think like i i like what i like to do is i i like to show both sides of it i like to show how hard it is for us as dads as well because dads um are quiet on this a lot quieter and and I know that there's dads who um some I know, some I don't know. But it's they don't know how to move through these situations. They don't have the 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 dad network to even another dad. Or they push people away. I push people away. For years, for eleven years I pushed people away. Was I just I it was part of my acceptance. And I had anger. I had frustration. I or you know what was your what what did kind of having dads that you could talk to share the commonality of kind of what the world that you lived in as dad, what, what did that, how was that for you? What did it look like? Uh, well, I mentioned to Bo and Mike being mm. like uh, a bit of a life raft, you know, yeah. that I could, you know, yeah. that I could relate to and talk to. And yeah. although I will say, because, um, Bo and I were so busy. We turned our friendship into a business partnership. And so we were so busy. We talk probably for an hour almost every week. Mm. And but we'll we'll busy that time up with the practical aspects of what we need to do. And and you know, it, it becomes more of a business call and less of a personal social call mm, right. with a check-in. Now uh what helps with that is that Bo does a weekly podcast about his daughter and Tess and her condition and and I can get that aspect by listening to his podcast mm. but even so sometimes I'll I'll comment on what he just said publicly in the podcast and he'll say oh there's so much more that I didn't get into and here it is and, and now I've got the behind the scenes and I'm glad I asked because it's a bit of what you I think you were alluding to I I don't think Bo is the type to sugarcoat it most of us have realized you got to share the good and the bad but even so some stuff is a little too private for the public and um i wrote a piece once on 
the dangers, I called it the dangers of happy face advocacy, right? Uh, and social media, okay. as you're alluding to, social media does this all the time. We all put our best lives out there. Like, here's my kid, special needs or not, here's my kid doing this amazing thing, right? And I know, as I mentioned, Lucas was so happy and smiley that almost every picture I have of him, and I'm very grateful for these, um, he's grinning ear to ear and smiling and happy and as i looked at my social feed that's what was out there mm -hmm. and so at one point after writing that article i thought i should be more honest in my representation of him to others and so i should include photos where he's not super happy and wouldn't you know it's like he he wanted to outsmart me every time i'd go he'd be sort of scowly face or something i go ah here's the moment here's the moment that shows he's not so happy <laughs> and i'd go to take the picture and he'd, he'd see the camera he'd break into a great big grin and i know this is a podcast and your audience can't see him but i'm going to show you that's right it goes up onto youtube so here we go yeah and um so in one he's about 10 years old yeah. and the other's two years old but that, right. was, that was just typical that he'd have that and other little kids would say he smiles like this and they draw their fingers out to their ears um, so. that must be something special i think to you know that you will always remember right is that because i think yeah. that, that you will a smile is just the most powerful thing right and and i think you know, it's like when, like with Jamie, um, I think he used to smile more. Actually, I'll be honest here. I think he used to smile more than what he does now. I remember he used to wake up every morning and he would wake up and he would smile. First thing he ever did was smile. Um, and I think it probably, I don't know how many years ago it stopped. Maybe like four or five years ago it stopped. Um, so he's up until maybe like, you know, 10 years old, he would wake up and the first thing he did was smile. And I always remember that. That's and he he doesn't it's it's definitely not every day because he would literally it was the first thing he did was smile. Um and yeah, I I think we we hear it from a lot of kids with rare diseases or chronic illnesses. Um they I don't know, exude a certain joy or something. And my wife said that um, when we encountered strangers and they would see Lucas for the first time, he could have this sort of I don't know, transformative effect on them that probably boiled down to whatever a given person's struggles were that day or when mm. they saw Lucas being happy and clearly he's in the wheelchair and he's just got tubes in and out of him and he's uh, not capable of speech. Um, but to see him so happy and smiley sort of signals, Hey, maybe, maybe your problems are manageable too. Maybe, mm. maybe you could have joy too. And I think he brought that joy to so many people. It, it was it was his gift to us, but also to strangers, random people on the street. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that, actually. I do think um there is there is that. And it's it's really the, the, the smile and the smile is such a powerful thing. 
it's and we're very lucky to have that um a lot I, there are uh children that do not have that and parents don't get that and that whew, how hard is that because you like not seeing not seeing your kid smile not seeing emotion or not being able to, for them to be able to do that uh would just be so hard and it's you know so we i have to kind of you know remind myself how fortunate you know um i am and that you know we were um to see that every morning um and he does smile now uh but it's it's different and uh you know um how how like we kind of talked about this a little bit before but like if you think about yourself before lucas came along how how did he change you enormously hugely um i think you said sim something similar about yourself when you were talking to casey rogers on your show and and i would agree with casey that you're probably not giving yourself enough credit so i want to make sure i give myself enough credit too but you might have said something like you weren't such a good person until you had jamie and i don't know that i was such a great person before i had lucas or at least i would like to believe i'm a better person now than i was before i'd also I, I definitely want to credit him for that and the experience that changed me. But I'd also like to think any version of Daniel at age 50 would be better than any version of Daniel at age 25. I think if, if we're not growing and improving, what are we doing? But I got a real steep growth curve out of Lucas and it really boils down to compassion and empathy and understanding and uh, just the knowledge I think I had a, a decent amount of privilege. I had probably never any, um, there was no category you might put me in that was uh, my disadvantage mm -hmm. until I had a child with some disadvantages, right? So, um, you know, to just to deal with accessibility issues, uh, you know, can we get in here with a wheelchair? Mm. That kind of thing. That was never on my radar. Mm. Um, and knowing how bad, like existentially bad a situation could be firsthand because of my son's health, let me appreciate that any given person could be going through it and I wouldn't know it to mm. look at them. Right. Mm. So um, the, morning news host robin roberts wrote a book and she has a phrase um everybody's got their something right mm -hmm. and now i can feel that um you know somebody's whatever the the grumpy uh, checkout clerk at the store mm. maybe it's the worst day of their life that day maybe they're completely justified in their attitude and their mood of the day it just isn't accommodating me or it's not the happy checkout person I was hoping for that day well maybe they're doing their best and knowing how 
bad Lucas's days could be or my days could be opened me up to that. Um, and also, I noticed a big difference if I walked down the street alone versus if I walked down the street with Lucas. And mm. sure, it's a cute young child and in a vulnerable health condition, you know. So, mm. but it brought out the best in people. And we saw much more generosity of your fellow community members or strangers or whoever mm. than we probably would have if we just looked like capable able-bodied people moving through their existence mm. it almost um gave permission to people again permission no one should need but it gave an opening or an opportunity to people to be their better selves including me you know mm. yeah it's it these these things change us don't they because they um i think like i i look back at myself um before jamie and i i see how i i i think i was um very i don't know i, I would just call myself just a a chilled guy who um you know yeah just a chilled guy and then i had then jamie came along and then the first few like all his problems as i kind of just i, I was still relatively chilled i think for the first four or five years maybe but i also was dealing with a lot of the um anxiety not anxiety the um trauma and grief of all his operations, his operations, hospitals. Um, and then came the schooling, which really was like, that was another, that was a big challenge. And I, and then became his physical, how I became and his strength and anger and all that. And I, I think um, for me, it was, um, I didn't realize how much anger I had or he brought out, um, this big lion in me. And I've never, I've like, and I don't know if it's because I've never, I've never been a, like a, a physical person. You know, some people are gonna, like, you know, they, you know, um, they, not go looking for fights, but they kind of, they, they, you know, they'll, um, someone goes and punches them, they, they kind of punch back, and it's not who I am, right? I just fucking run away. Um, and I, as I've kind of gone through my journey, as I've, um, I, I realized that I, was my, I was, it was, my my upbringing and everything was it was it was so peaceful my upbringing was so peaceful and i never had that and now all of a sudden i've got jamie you know being so physical towards me 
with his anger. And I've, and, and that's like, I fucking really struggle with this. I really struggle with this because like, I, um, no one likes being hit. Um, and it's, I think the single biggest challenge I face on a daily basis is like trying to not react to it and bring and when I when I get like I can head butted in the head in the chest or whatever or you know bitten um is that the hardest thing is not to react on this and, and just that is um a real world struggle that, that I that, that I, I currently kind of have um and that's you know it, it's a it's a big challenge and I think I haven't really said it I, I mean spoken a lot about that on on the podcast before because but I, it's like I um but I think it's important to say it because again if people don't if we don't hear it if we don't share these journeys then we think that we are all just doing it on our own and I that that kind of that frustration of being walloped, um, you know, is is real and it is devastating. And I think it's even more devastating because when it's your own child hitting you. Yeah, I I have not had that same experience even remotely because mm -hmm. basically Lucas didn't have the physicality to do it. Yeah, but I can I can certainly empathize with how horrible that is for you, and I think a dimension of it is probably along the lines of an emotional betrayal, right? You, yeah, you are a, positioning, yeah, yeah. you're positioning yourself to do so much to Jamie's benefit. And this is part of your, not true, but you might feel it to be true. Repayment is yeah. to be physically punished for it. Yeah. And uh, so, mm -hmm. so not, even if you could withstand all the physical, right. If it wasn't very damaging physical pain, the emotional pain would be yeah i think it's the major I think, yeah i think the it's the emotional side that i i'm just like it's the physical straight away and then it goes straight to the emotional yeah yeah um and it's it's really it's it's so goddamn tricky it's so hard yeah. um and it's um Anyway, I've just gone off on a total ramble there. Um, <laughs> that's typical me. Um, let's bring it back into you. Um, what with with the journey? What did how with schooling and things like this? What did that look like? How did that play out for you guys? Yeah, um, I one of the saddest moments early on I had was a, around the idea of schooling, specifically mm. school buses. Right. When um, he, Lucas was too young for school, you know, age two and age three, um, I would drop him off at my mom's each morning for some childcare with her. And uh, driving back from her house to mine, I would be stuck behind school buses. Mm. And I, it was it was my alone time, right? You get to be alone with your thoughts. You're mm -hmm. you're in the car, and 
here are these school buses as a giant physical symbol in front of my face. And all I can think is my kid's never going to ride that bus. My kid at the time I was thinking not going to go to school. Uh, turns out he did. He went to special needs school, which was part of our main school district. It was in the same school buildings, but they had a special classroom, which turned out is one of the best in the area. And everybody wants to choose where they live, hopefully thinking it has good schools, but you never think, does it have a good special needs school? Mm -hmm. but, but ours did. We were very fortunate in that way. And then sure enough, when the time came, he was riding a bus. It was that short bus with a gate that comes down with a ramp for a wheelchair and he yeah. got on in his wheelchair but i didn't see that in our future and it was crushing to me so when it did happen i was overjoyed and then this one particular story it's silly but it, it just means a lot to me you think especially kids that can't communicate or even if it's just they're different physically different or whatever you think are they going to have friends are they going to have friends at school? Is that part of their experience? And I thought, well, with Lucas not communicating, maybe friends aren't going to be part of the equation, you know? And then one day he got on the school bus. I can hear one of the other kids on the bus, top of his lungs saying, Lukey's here, all happy and excited. And he brought popcorn, which he did not bring popcorn. I don't know why the kid said it, but that he added that extra detail that made him happy just made me so happy. Oh, that's lovely. What a great story. That would have been a moment that you just you, you just hold on to and it, they're kind of, yeah. And, and the other great aspect of that is how, given time, I realized how wrong I was, right? I went from my kid's never going to go to school, he's never going to ride a school bus, mm -hmm. and all the self-pity that I was feeling there, yeah. to no, he did go to school. He did ride school bus. He made friends. You know, all the, not all, because, you know, the other things, like he's never going to go to prom. Well, yeah, he didn't. Um, you know, he's never going to go to college. True. So, yes, there were a lot of predictions and despairs that, that turned true, but there were several that were unwarranted and, and turned out to not be true or different, you know, a version of school, a version of the school bus, right? Mm. Just not the one you had in mind. Yeah. Um, how, how did you look after yourself and how do you look after yourself now? Because you've got, you have, <laughs> for those who can't see what he's doing, he's just leaning back on his chair. Um, <laughs> trying not to laugh. Trying not to laugh. I'll, and why I'm laughing is because I, I learned what to do before I was able to take my own advice and do it. I was lucky enough to be active in this community and, and learn from others and hear the best practices and the best advice. What is self-care and, and how important is self-care? And you can't give from an empty cup and put your own mask on first is something you've said and my wife yeah. and I say all the time. Uh, so I knew these things in theory, and yet I wasn't doing very many of them or any of them. And mm. then I'd find myself in a bit of crisis mode and I'd think, well, how do I get out of this? And I'm like, oh, you do the deep breathing. I tell people all the time, do the slow, deep breathing. Why am I not doing it, right? You <laughs> go for a walk outside. Why am I not doing that, right? So um, 
a lot of these things that I knew were going to be helpful, I, and I think so many parents in our situation, was dismissive of. You, you hear them and you say, yeah, but who has time for that? I don't have time for that. And I didn't, or I didn't make time for it. And so too late, perhaps, but maybe never too late, it was easier to find time after we lost Lucas. And so without the demands of his health care, um, I was able to make more time. And I, I had to take a look at what is working for me. And what the mm. biggest thing that was working for me was to go on bike rides and listen to podcasts while I was bike riding. Mm. Although um, sometimes it was Effie Park's podcast. And I realized as wonderful as that is, that's just keeping me in the rare disease headspace. And maybe I need to switch gears to some other, you know, this American mm. life or some economics podcast or something unrelated. <laughs> um, yeah. But so as much as I latched onto that as this is me time, this is my mm. self-care time, I'm going to do this bike ride and get an hour of solitude or whatever. Um, that I live in New York and that only works in the summer. So what was I doing for the winter? Almost nothing. And I then discovered maybe I have uh, a seasonal affective disorder or winters are harder whether it's because I'm not taking care of myself or because I'm not getting enough sunlight or whatever. So this year in particular, I really had to work on uh, taking that walk, even if the weather's lousy, get out of the house. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, so you just so many of us, forced yourself yeah, to get out there. Yeah. So many of us work from home and I'm one of them. I have been for most of my career for the last 15 or so years anyway. Uh, but working from home, I could find myself never leaving the home in 24 hours or 48 hours, never exiting this building that I live in. And uh, that had to change. I had to I had to make the time to make that change. So and I still listen to the podcasts. And uh, <laughs> sometimes they're about grief these days, which, um, you know, is a mix between uh, being very helpful information that mm -hmm. I need and maybe... I don't know if it's wallowing or ruminating in being stuck in grief, but. Mm. And that's a real, that's very real because, and I think like, it's almost like, I feel sometimes we think it's a bit of a dirty word, isn't it? Or it's a bad word or something like you're talking about like, you know, grief or stuck in grief or living, living with, living with grief um, is it, but I think that it's it is real, and as long as there is, we we're not kind of sucking ourselves down in the down the drain with this grief, and finding ways to move forward, knowing that we have it, because that's that is what it is. We cannot like deny it. Because we are, we're human. We have those emotions, right? Um, and I'm not, I'm not a grief specialist. Like I'm far from a grief specialist. Um, so I, I don't know a hell of a lot about that. Um, but I think it's real, and there's always a, there's a process, and there's a journey, and that it looks different for everyone. It can be so different for everyone, and I, and again, it's like. As a dad, like it can 
I guess it can be really challenging because, you know, you feel a lot, I guess, do you feel a bit alone in that world as a dad? You've, Yes. Um, I think, you know, the number one thing people facing rare disease talk about is their feeling of isolation. Mm. And my advice to that is go find your people, right? Well, mm. finding your people, the people you had pre rare disease life, some of them may be there for you through it all, you know, mm. whether it's your family or your friends or whoever, coworkers. Um, others may not be the right fit for what you need. And when you find your people, um, it may be special needs parents, or it may be more precise than that, maybe rare disease parents it might be more precise than that, it might be rare disease dads. And then as we talked about a little bit earlier, is it rare disease dads who are stay-at-home dads? Mm. Is it then the categories keep getting smaller and smaller. And it's harder to find the people, right? Mm. Is it Rare disease dads who are stay-at-home dads who have lost their child. Well, that's a small group, right? Yeah. So now I find myself where I had two years ago so closely identified with all rare disease parents. Now I need to find and more closely identify with rare disease parents who have lost their child. And it's a smaller group and, you it, know, I it's, it's, it's a it transition. A quiet, is it a quieter group as well? Uh, yes. And in, in some ways, I think there's, um, uh, I don't know if it's a trepidation or a timidity that we all walk on eggshells a bit. Like, do we, do we want to have this conversation now? Cause you don't always want to be thick in your grief. Sometimes you want to leave it aside for a while. Yeah. So usually you can, you can know, I think that, we are similar enough and we've gone through it enough that we will be sensitive to each other and and we're all we're all ready to listen and talk right but but it's 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 still hard to get over that uh, societal norm of maybe now is not a good time to talk about this you know i remember being at an event um there were three of us, it was a rare disease event, so it's not surprising, but there were three of us sitting in a row who had lost our children in the last two years. And it wasn't a coincidence. We weren't randomly seated. We we sought each other out and we sat mm -hmm. next to each other, but not explicitly for that reason, right? Just sort of shared experience. And then another woman was a few feet away and I went to talk to her and I knew she had lost her daughter in the last year. And I said something like, look over there. One, two, three. We, we've all been there. And the tears started to come. And I think she was overwhelmed. Like from her point of view, here's a random collection of people. And there's this many that are in the same situation I'm in. You know, it was a powerful moment to me. And I, I'm glad I, I, I think it was some comfort that I could bring to her that like, here's a person you can talk to. Here's another one. Here's another one. And so, unfortunately, just in the last week, another friend in this rare disease space, a powerful advocate, lost her daughter a week ago. And I've reached out in small ways, but I intend to reach out more. And one of the things I hope I can offer her or her husband is, here are some of those people. I mean, I'm sure she could find them without me, but 
here's some ones that I find value in, you know, mm. that I think have good perspective to share because the advice is the same, even when the, the community gets smaller and smaller, it's, you got to find the people, find the right people. And it, it must be, yeah, just so tricky to navigate that because yeah, working on eggshells, do you say the right, you don't want to say the wrong thing. Yeah. And I, I, this, this past week, I, I really struggled with that and sending a, a simple card, you know, am I, am I putting the wrong emphasis at the right, right time? Cause that's another aspect too, right? As you, different things are right for you at different times and mm. to hear something when you're not ready is not helpful. So I really agonized over what to write in this condolence card. And I was only writing like two sentences. Um, but what I tried to let guide me and help me was that when we lost Lucas, nobody said the wrong thing. Anybody who said anything to us, I could tell came from a place of concern and caring and the good intentions behind it. So I could forgive awkward phrases. I could, I could forgive something which in its literal interpretation, I disagreed with, you know, mm. maybe their, their choice of words was maybe a hundred percent wrong, but the fact the thought, that they took the, the yeah, it's the thought that counts, right? The fact that they took the time to show concern, that was what mattered. I think I'm, I'm really glad you said that because I think that that's something which, you know, um, people will, can learn from. And I think that's so, because again, you're, you're, that was your, you, you, that was your experience and what you believed in. And I, as you're saying that, I was like, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense because you, in a way, the what's written on the card is without putting any, without, like, how do I say this? Like, without saying like a real dick, it's it's just words, but it's the thought of actually writing something on that card and actually sending that card. Yeah. I think that's, that is massive. And there's, uh, I was listening to a podcast about the, uh, a psychological study that they didn't use the phrase, it's the thought that counts, but it boiled down to that, right? The, the difference between what a giver or a, the person initiating an action thinks is the value and what the receiver thinks is the value, right? So mm -hmm. if I randomly gave you a brownie, I'm thinking I gave you a $2 brownie. It's worth $2, but you're thinking how wonderful that a stranger took their time and came up to me and gave me something. You're not thinking $2. You might not even be thinking brownie. You might hate brownies. You might be allergic to brownies, right? But you're thinking the generosity of time and spirit. And that's, that's what's important. Wisdom, man. Those are great words. Love it. Absolutely love it. Um, okay. What? Let's let's go into. We've kind of been having a pretty intense, deep conversation here, so we're going to just lighten the load a little bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> what is like? Has music played a role for you? Podcasts clearly have. Um, <laughs> what about music? Has music? I know for me, music 
plays a real part for me because I, I I've always loved music, but there are songs that kind of I connect with um, a particular song, which is on my on the dad's playlist that I put out, um, and it's called um, Control. Um, and I used to play it heaps because uh, probably about a year ago I used to thrash the song, and she talks about kind of losing control, and I used to relate it to my anger. Um, but so it had a kind of a like a, a mixed kind of uh, feeling and emotions came came with that song. What about you? What has music looked like for you in your journey? And is there a song that you or songs that you were like, yeah, like uh, this song reminds me, or this song I love this tune. This is great. Like, yeah, definitely. I think one of the advantages uh, of being through tough things, right? You, you can mm. say your heart is broken, but it's broken open to let more in, and often that hits me with music things that. Mm. Um, maybe even a song that I heard prior to having Lucas that I thought was a fluffy, silly song with no importance to it. And now I'll hear it at a deeper level and I'll go, mm. Oh, that, that emotion is really true for me. And um, so one particular song that really sort of matters to me in a different way because of Lucas, Lucas, if you take the, take a look at the the name uh, we named him Lucas because of George Lucas and Luke Skywalker. Oh, really? But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Um, oh. But uh, from its root, Lucas means something like bringer of light. And mm. when you see Lucas's bright, shiny eyes and the light in his face, it really seems appropriate that he's the bringer of light. And uh, so the so one of the songs that really matters to me is by Muse and Starlight. If it's not in your dad's playlist, I hope maybe you'll add it. So the song Starlight seems pretty good for... This you is got the it. Here it is. You got it. I know this one. I love that one. Yeah, this is good. I haven't heard this song in ages. It, Fantastic. It gets me. It gets me every time. And one of, you know, Starlight, Lucas, Bright Light, so that in Skywalker, sci-fi stars, it all feels good for that reason. But in the lyrics of the song are um, oh, Black Holes and Revelations all our hopes and expectations, right? Or maybe maybe it's in the other order. But the grief journey, the rare disease journey is so much about our hopes and expectations. And of course it can feel like a um a black hole sometimes. And mm -hmm. and then, you know, I'm sure Starlight is written for a, a love affair, not necessarily a parent relationship, but I just wanted to hold you here in my arms, you know. It, mm. the the whole song is so important to me and then i was so lucky to have an opportunity around this time last year global genes was kicking off the announcement of our big event in the fall and we brought in a musician to uh play play songs and make the announcement and share the news of what what to look forward to right like a pre-announcement launch party kind of thing yeah. yep and his name was Michael and I can't remember his last name, very talented guy. And he took requests and, and this was like by zoom meeting. Um, okay. Right. And he took, took requests and I asked for muse by starlight at starlight by muse. And he 
said, I don't really know it. I don't usually play it, but I, I, I love that you asked for it and I'll try. And he did a fantastic <laughs> version of it. And, you know, then there he is saying, awesome. this is for Daniel and Lucas. And it just breaks my heart. You know? Wow. So awesome. So it really does have a lot of meaning now. Hey? And I was, I was just looking at, as you were kind of talking about the lyrics, I just looked at the lyrics as on my screen there. Um, yeah, I could see how those those lyrics would really kind of run quite deep and have a lot of meaning. Hey, um, what about another one? Do you have any 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 others? That, another one that kind of jumps out at you? Well, it's it's a bit cliche, but it's um, especially when Lucas was little, my mom would sing to him, and we had a music box that would play "You Are My Sunshine." And again, you know, every parent probably thinks their kid is their sunshine, but Lucas's face with its bright light and shining—these these are recurring themes in our life, right? How much yep. he shines for us. So, yeah. And then there was a film. Um, uh, not a film, a song by Joey and Rory and their country music. And I don't normally listen to country music, but um, it's terribly sad. Um, I've, I think the title might be When I'm Gone. And he wrote it to his wife because she would she was dying. She would be gone. Mm. And that one, it's so gorgeous, so beautiful. And, it, it, you know, again, breaks my heart all the time. Who Who was the singer of that one? Joey and Rory, um, country duo, Freak, Feek, F-E-E-K might oh, be the go. last name. Here we yeah. go. You got that one? I got this one here. A bright sunrise will contradict the heavy fall. Mm, that sounds. I can't play the whole thing here because. Um, yeah, but give it a listen when you have we'll time. Give, we'll, yeah. we'll basically cut our uh, podcast out or not. Um, they won't like it. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> but I, I, that's right. I like playing a snippet and then I'll, it's, that will go, that one there will go onto the playlist right now. It's going to go on there. And then another is Warren Zevon's Hold Me in Your Heart for a While. And. Again, I'm being a little morbid here, but keep me in your heart, I think it's called. Um, but he wrote this when he knew he would be dying, and it is gut-wrenching. Okay, keep me in your... What, uh, Warren Zivon, is that the one? Warren's... Zivon, yeah. Zivon, okay, here we go. Shadows are falling and I'm running out of breath Keep me in your heart for a while If I leave you, it doesn't mean I love you Oh yeah, we'll throw that one in there as well, man you got to get into that playlist, but there's some really interesting music in there <laughs> Good, yeah, I look forward to it <laughs> they were, All those three songs are in there I've put them all in there Slap, bang, boom, hmm. done Great um what to like second to last kind of question here 
What would be four words that have sum up your life um, from when Lucas came into the came into the world to now? Hmm. What would those four words may be? Um, I, they may be surprising to people, but I think it's amazed, grateful, determined, proud. Grateful might be surprising because nobody wants this, right? You you don't want your kid to be in bad health, but it was an amazing experience with him. Uh, it's so it, it may sound terrible to be grateful for it but i am um and then proud you know i didn't give him enough credit i thought he was limited in what he could do physically mm -hmm. and, and and couldn't communicate verbally and um so it was tempting to think he might not accomplish much which is a weird word but um but we didn't have much expectation that he accomplished anything you know he was a little kid with decreased abilities mm. and yet the things he did and actually those two pictures i showed you i'm going to describe to people this is probably age two lucas is holding a pen and he's scribbled and this is probably him the most proud of himself he's ever been because yeah. those scribbles were you could see his face light up that mm. he he never accomplished anything more i don't know typically capable than that mm. he was able to use a marker to make some marks on a page with very little help and it meant the world to him and then it meant the world to us yeah and then the, and the other great thing picture, is you have a picture yeah. of that as well yeah the you there's probably a, a lot of pictures that you have got but that one like must mean so much right because it was like that was what he what he what he was able to do but then he wasn't able to do that anymore so that was right. something that was so special to him but also so special to you as well yeah that's definitely the the sad side of that equation is that it didn't get better from there. It got worse mm. from there. You know, he was not able to do that again, you know. Um, mm. But then the other picture, age 10, I think, he's at school with a friend from school. And first of all, I, I already suggested to you that I wasn't ready to believe that he would even have friends in the mm. traditional sense, but he yeah. did. And oftentimes school would send back a... a report or an estimation of his progress and of course it's their job to make sure he progresses but we know that he's he's going to decline in his abilities and mm. he may not progress so we may have um been a little dismissive of some of the good reports that mm. we might have thought that the school was overestimating his achievements right so word came back one day that he had been a really good friend and really compassionate to his friend and really comforted his friend and we kind of thought mm, what does that mean how much did he do what what are you mm. basing this on right yeah. and luckily the other mom it was his friend hunter and the other mom told me the story in her own words and then sent me the picture and in the picture, you see Hunter's sort of clenched, almost fetal position because he's in some distress. And Lucas has reached out and offered his hand. And the boy's taken Lucas's hand. And Lucas is just 
beaming joy and i had no idea he could do that and to this day it's the, the thing i'm probably most proud of mm-hmm. i think that's it's school when when they're not around us is we don't get to see we don't get to see or hear a lot do we and we rely on schools to share with us or friends of um like i say the mum kind of filled you in on that and i and that's i think one of the one of it's a tricky thing for us it's a difficult thing for me we send them off to school and sometimes we just don't quite know we don't really know how they're doing we don't know really what the i say the effect of jamie in the in, in the class um not that i want an effect i just like you know he's there and i know that he does have an impact on that class um and i think i um having giving parents feedback like photos and videos is so it's monumental for us i really feel that like and and i don't think i'd love we'd love to get more there's a whole lot of there's a range of reasons why these schools don't do it it's here they're obsessed about like you know oh we can't you know give you these photos because there's other people in the photos it's like right jesus like I get yeah. that. I really get it, you know. But why take the fucking photo in the first place if you can't even <laughs> give it to me? You know? And yeah. I said it, I, I actually said that to the guy. The other, um, I said it to the guy who was showing us these photos or videos of Jamie playing basketball. And I said, oh, you know, can we have these? And he's like, mm. I'm like, okay, I get that. But you know what? Can you do me a favor? And if someone comes to this junior high who has a child who with special needs, can you goddamn show them this picture? Because that's the point. Otherwise, there's no reason to show this picture to me. It's yeah. it's almost, it's like dangling this fucking carrot in front of my face and saying, I got a photo for you. But like, you know, you ain't going to have this photo. This is your kid with special needs who can't communicate with you and like, can't share what they've done uh joining in with like uh the full inclusive uh program but no you can't have it it's ours because these other other people in this photo i fucking get that but i i it's just a real world frustration for me and like and i i don't know if there's some kind of workaround or people just need to chill the fuck out or i need to chill the fuck out i don't know (laughs) Yeah, at the, at the at the very least, I know it would be a little bit of effort on their part, but they could go in and blur the other faces and oh. give you a version of the photo like that. Yeah, it just, I don't know. It frustrates me, man. It's one frustration I have. It's one, one of the multiple frustrations I have. But, you know, at the end of the day, he's in the class. He's participating. And that's, like, uh, that's huge. And I know that it's not, not always possible for a lot of parents. As they're yeah. not, they, they, for whatever reason, whether it's just the school doesn't allow it or they 
um, choice that they've made to to not do that. I I, I get that. Yeah, uh, that's actually athletics is one of the ways I was so impressed and surprised with our school system. They really try to mainstream include as much as possible. And so again, one day they said, oh, Lucas and his class will be playing soccer. And I thought, my kid in the wheelchair is playing soccer. What are you talking about? And I went and saw and they had a great adaptive accommodation. They gave Lucas a much bigger soccer ball that he could just bump into with the feet of his wheelchair. Oh, you know, so he was he was participating the way he could. And then similarly, they were doing um, musical chairs. And I thought, how is the kid in the wheelchair going to play musical chairs? He's always got a chair. Well, they worked that out too. And there was a cone to represent you have a chair available or you lost a chair. So the fact that you're already seated in a wheelchair didn't really matter. Oh, man, I love this. Yeah. How much? Like, so that, good. It's like, I hope there's um, teachers listening to this and like, be like musical chairs, there it is. If someone is in a wheelchair, we can still do it, like, like yeah. using cones or whatever. Like, yeah. because it's, you know, yeah, musical chairs, but you don't need a chair. Like, it's it just it's just a placement. It's all it's just a placement, right? Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Um, Daniel, if you could, if you could whisper in your ear and go back. Um, to when it all started, if you could whisper in your ear any advice, <laughs> my dog is snoring. Like <laughs> this time, I hear it. You can hear that one. Yeah, she's yeah. totally out to it. Um, if you could whisper in your ear any advice to yourself, way back at the very beginning, what would that be? Ah. Uh... I, I find myself giving advice to others these days, so I guess I should give that same advice to my younger self, which is there will be joy in the mix. It doesn't look like it, but there will be. Um, you are going through grief, so learn about grief. Put those labels on it. So those labels will help. You know, if you if you can identify what you're dealing with, it helps. Um, and then, you know, find your people as quick as possible and they may not be the people you expect them to be um and also related to that it's a little more cynical maybe but we all know some people step up and some people step away and be prepared for that let them go if they're not there for you if they can't handle this and i get it like it's child mortality i mean we don't like at least in the west uh, um we don't like mortality in general mm. But child mortality is extra cruel and extra vivid a reminder. So some people aren't in a place where they can face it. And what do you know? They disappear from your life or they uh, they can't show up the way you want them to show up. And the good news is there are other people that can. You might not have met them yet, but there are people that can do what you need and you've got to find them. And sometimes you're lucky they find you instead. Wonderful advice, you know, to kind of whisper back into your ear. Um, yeah, I wonder whether you. Will, I wonder whether you would have taken it on board. <laughs> what if someone was, like, well, that's that's the thing. It. I try to gauge when I talk to others. Like, where are you? Like, if you're very yeah. newly diagnosed, you might be so in anger that you can't hear 
how, let's say, maybe the doctor wasn't the worst person in the world, right? Or maybe it's understandable mm-hmm. that they misdiagnosed for three years and then got it yeah. wrong and then got it right. Um, with enough time, more advice is welcome. Mm. But when we're closer to crisis mode, certain messages can't get through. So I don't know if I could have heard them in the early days. Yeah, I I I, I agree with you on that. Um, but then again, I suppose if it's if if it was your own voice though, if it was your own voice, and you just you were like, "Holy shit!" Like, like this is my own voice. I'm like this is something just myself telling me this. Yeah. I'm sure yeah. that happens. To, I'm sure or, that happens to people it, anyway. Like it's like or would it even yeah surreal situation even, <laughs> right? Or, or would even that still sound like who is this uh, Zen wannabe pseudo enlightened <laughs> you know advice columnist guy talking to me talking right? to me? Yeah. Uh, all right, okay, Daniel, I I really appreciate it, and I thank you for. Um, reaching out to me actually um, on an email because um, you you sent me an email and um, you had named uh, a couple of guys who you thought um, I, I might like to kind of get on and I was like and then you said oh like you know you'd be happy to share yours as well you wanted to recommend yourself as like well I'm going to get you on first um, and like I I wasn't sure how, like, how this was going to go. I'll be honest. I've, I've been like, well, what, how, how's, how's this going to go with, like, the story and where do I go with this and how do I navigate this because of the situation you're that, you know, has happened to you. Um, and I, I really appreciate your, you know, your honesty and your vulnerability and your openness about everything here and your authenticity about it because i think that's everything that is so much in this like and having a dad talk about it be real about it um share it is vital it's so vital and um i really really appreciate thank you very much for for sharing it with uh with with everyone with me and with everyone yeah, thanks for the opportunity and sharing your story with me and everyone. It's like you said, it's a it's a needed resource. So hopefully, it does some good for some people. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's wonderful to to hear, and I, you know, um, yeah, it's great. So I appreciate your time, and I uh, I apologize for the dog snoring right at the end, um, just ruining it. <laughs> Um, anyway, all right, wonderful. Thank you so much again, hey? All right, thank you. There you have it, another dad talking about life as dad to their child which has special needs extra needs disabilities how good was that well there are more dads out there like that and we need to hear them and 
they need to feel like they are not alone in this. This is why I do this podcast. So if you know a dad, please share it with that dad. Or with the mum. As long as it gets into the hands of them, that's where it needs to be. All right. Thanks again for listening. I also am looking for dads to be on the podcast, like this one. So if you are a dad or if you know someone, yeah, maybe they might want to share their journey as well. So please get in touch by either the Facebook pages, on Instagram, or on email. The email address is lifewithjamieandmore at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Take care. Be good to yourself. Look after yourself. Be kind. And we'll hear from you soon.